0: The following is adapted from chapter 5 of the book, Knowing God by Name, by Blair Adams, and is read by the author. Brother Blair is the founding minister of Heritage Ministries and the Homestead Heritage Communities. He has devoted his entire life to explaining and proclaiming the liberating Word of God in countless spoken messages and in scores of published books. In this message, A Very Great Trembling, we will see that although Isaac is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, God asks Abraham if he is willing to sacrifice this promise back to God. Has the promise replaced the promise-giver as Abraham's God? This willingness to sacrifice the very fulfillment of God's promise requires unshakable trust in the One who gave the promise. God requires this same trust of all those who would follow in the steps and faith of Abraham.
1: After he had sent Hagar and Ishmael away, it seemed as if for the first time Abraham's household might at last begin to settle into some semblance of the peace he'd always longed for and the enjoyment of the familial blessings of El Shaddai. We've learned through previous studies that God had brought Abraham through a long education process to prepare him to be the founder of a new sort of community on earth, teaching him to think of Sarah as his wife and not as his half-sister, teaching him about the responsibilities of fatherhood and community through Lot, teaching him that his efforts in the flesh to bring to pass the promise of God were futile and counterproductive, as well as many other things. Abraham had then approached the surrounding peoples And as his God had done with him, he made covenants of peace with them. For by now he knew that this road to blessing would not come without the covenant or without the destiny that the covenant alone brought within reach. So it seemed that after a life of much turmoil and struggle, everything had finally been set pretty much in order. So surely soon all the blessings would also now come. Yet in the midst of the seeming calm, the unseen voice again speaks. It came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And faithful Abraham replied, here I am. God had a final lesson, it seems, for Abraham. Upon this lesson would hang the key to success or failure. In Abraham's great mission of initiating a new transcendent order for human community, a mission for which, according to the Hebrew Scriptures, this first of all the Jewish people had been explicitly chosen. Through this lesson, Abraham, if he'd ever doubted it before, would now come to know unequivocally that the imminent order of simply a long line of natural progeny would never be decisive in establishing God's new plan and purpose for human relationships. Rather, the notion of spiritual progeny would gain both clarity and ascendancy. This next lesson in Abraham's life begins with one of the most staggering accounts in all of Western literature. And Elohim said, Take your son, your only son Isaac whom you love and go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about we can hardly help noticing the Elohim's own awareness of what is at stake in the emphatic your son your only son Isaac in part the Elohim seems to be letting Abraham know that God knows the cost of what he is asking. And on still another level, God once again stresses that in his eyes, not Ishmael, not Eliezer, not Lot, but only Isaac is Abraham's son. Curiously, in the Hebrew, the request for this sacrifice also includes the word na, which literally means please. Therefore, scholars have pointed out that it is not strictly a command, but that it can be taken to mean, if it pleases you to obey me. So as heart-rending as the request was, it was not spoken as a compulsory injunction, but rather in the context of a relationship of trust, a relationship that had by now grown throughout much of Abraham's life. On the basis of this relationship, God asked Abraham to now continue trusting him completely by willingly of his own volition, making the greatest sacrifice seemingly possible for him. As we now know from our vantage point of hindsight, this unique God in stark contrast to other regional deities would prevent the act itself from taking place. Yet what was and still is most startling and significant was Abraham's willingness to comply with such a request. But how, moderns wonder, no matter which way we attempt to justify it, could he have consented to do this thing? The Genesis record does not seem to directly answer what for moderns is the most crucial question. Although we'll see that it most definitely, if indirectly, answers, nonetheless, here it simply continues the narrative unfolding the story toward its amazing climax. So Abraham rose early in the morning, and saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, and Isaac, his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering, and arose and went to the place of which God told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance to fully understand what Abraham is willingly about to do here. We need to recall the context of all that this man has been through up till now, from Ur, Haran, Canaan, and Egypt, to the struggles with the kings of the east and the lessons he'd gone through with his wife and with Lot and Sodom, with Hagar and Ishmael, with Eliezer. Now, finally, the promise has seemingly come to fulfillment, and his son, Isaac. Yet at this very moment of hard-won triumph, a terrifying and seemingly incomprehensible request has come to him, a request asking him to destroy not only the culminating purpose of his life, but also that purpose as relationally personalized in the words, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. In other words, Isaac is the only son God recognizes through whom his own promise to Abraham will be fulfilled. And yet God seems to be asking Abraham to sacrifice the very instrument of promise that God himself has given him. The narrative next quite revealingly tells us that Abraham said to his young men, "'You stay here with the donkey,' I and the lad will go up over there, and we will worship and return to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife, and the two of them walked on together. This word for together is yakad, which means joined in an absolute or complete state of oneness. The use of this word describes something rare, specifically something even deeply moving about the nature of the relationship between Abraham and his son. That is, they seem to be truly inseparable in their mutual devotion. Yet the father unknown to the son seems ready to slay the son as a sacrifice. It all seems imponderable, terrible in its haunting sense of an impending triumph now mixed with the gloom of a profound sorrow. The only hint of any even possible relief is that Abraham has mysteriously declared that apparently both he and Isaac shall come down from the mountain. We're not sure yet what this means or how it will come to pass, but the story continues. As they went on together, in this complete unity. At last, Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, "'My father.' Abraham responds, "'Here I am, my son.'" The words of this sentence have been interpreted to literally mean, I am fully present to you, my son, that is, as a father. They are the same words Abraham spoke to God, but as a son. The statement has decisive importance and understanding what Abraham is doing here. It reinforces the notion that somehow Abraham knew he was not making a sacrifice in the manner of the Canaanites or the people of Ur, who had blindly and mechanically followed the compulsory dictates of their culture and their state in making just such sacrifices, much as modern nations as Perins Patriae, has sacrificed hundreds of millions of their citizens' lives in war. Something of this had perhaps already been suggested when Abraham said to the attendants, "'We will return to you.'" So these were not the words of a man who is simply following the conventional rites of a vicious culture, a culture, say, such as Ur, which would have forced him to abdicate to the state all his responsibilities as a father. From countless other fathers, these ancient tyrannical states had demanded just such abdication, even to the extent of sacrificing their children as burnt offerings upon the altar of the state as Canaan itself required. In fact, it happened tens of thousands of times on the altars of the ancient pagan world. But in contrast, Abraham was still following the voice that had been teaching him how to truly become a husband and a father, and also to fulfill his responsibilities as such. This was the voice of the one who said that he had chosen Abraham just because he would stand in his place as a father and love his children enough to teach them to follow the way of Yahweh. This was the God who had shown that relational love is the highest value and goal of life, a love that found its characteristic expression for human beings in becoming husbands and fathers, wives and mothers, sons and daughters. So when Abraham said to Isaac, I am fully present to you as your father, he was saying that in spite of all the appearances to the contrary, he believed that this unseen voice would prove itself to be essentially different from the other voices of those surrounding cultures, which all reveled in human sacrifice and death. This seems to be the only explanation for why he told his men that both he and the boy would return. It was also at this point that Isaac offers his own poignant words, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering?" Abraham replied, God will provide or literally literally reveal or even show himself to be the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Here again, Abraham expresses his conviction that this God differs from all the rest. Yahweh had first indicated this difference when he made a covenant with Abraham, when God himself passed through the fire and the pieces of the sacrifice in effect pronouncing the curses upon himself as if God himself were going to stand in the place of the torn sacrifice and the trial by ordeal. But the text we're dealing with here then says of Isaac and Abraham simply that the two of them walked on together. Again, the word yakad Finally, they came to the place God had told him. And Abraham built the altar and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. All we've seen of Abraham's comments point to only one possible conclusion, that he believed that even if Isaac died, God would raise him up from the dead so that both would go down the mountain as they had come up together. So what is revealed here is that Abraham saw the battle as one of trust, even in the face of death, that the ultimate enemy to be overcome was death and that this transcendent God was promising to meet death head on and conquer both it and the ultimate loss it always threatens. And he wants to know if Abraham can trust him enough to do this. This is an astounding thought, but a careful reading hardly allows for any other conclusion. The passage that brings us to the climax of the story doesn't describe Abraham's anguish, his thoughts, his feelings, as he took Isaac up the mountain or as he picked up the knife. To speak of what Abraham was mentally or emotionally suffering would detract from what he actually did. It would debase his actions with a false sentimentality, a shallow emotionalism. The very somberness and cadence of the conversation, I am fully present to you as your father, my son, says enough of what he felt and it says it with piercing simplicity, with poignant constraint and realism. No amount of purple prose could accomplish what this simple description and dialogue does. When the angel then reaches out to stay Abraham's hand, this numinous being declares that Abraham has passed the test because he has shown that he fears God. The word translated as fear here, Yara, means a dread reverence and recognition of a form of being beyond our comprehension, of a power beyond our control, of a force before which we feel small and toward which we always look up, as toward the great other. So the purpose of the test had been to prove whether Abraham truly had acknowledged a transcendent presence and purpose one so supreme in his life as to utterly nullify everything that exalted Abraham's own self-importance. He was being tested as to whether he trusted his relationship with the unseen voice of this transcendent God, even in the face of the death of all he could value as a natural man all the racial, ethnic, or personal pride in this son of his flesh, and all that this son might accomplish, accomplishments that might make Abraham's name great, uh, otherwise serve his personal interest. In the biblical terms in which Abraham was the first to speak, the question was whether he had learned to walk before God and be tamim, that is, integral, perfect, whole, complete. It is a word that ironically in modern hebrew has completely diverged from its original meaning but god was asking abraham if he could be these things even when the most fragmenting force on earth came against him death in effect god was trying to show abraham that if all the disintegrating forces of egocentricity hadn't been squeezed from his soul by his previous trials and lessons, then this very sacrifice that would destroy his son would in truth surely end up becoming the actual fate of his son, that Abraham would indeed, whether consciously or not, offer up Isaac on the altar of Abraham's own pride, as millions of fathers and mothers still do every day. And in the end, death would triumph over the relationship. The quality of perfect integrity commanded of Abraham by God was not some abstract, self-contained sense of a perfect personality pitch or even perfect character alone. Rather, it was a perfection of trusting response, a perfection of character and integrity in response to relationship, first with God, but also in an order of relationships with other people, whether friend or foe, family or enemy. Walk before me and be perfect, Yahweh had said to him. Abraham was to perfect himself in his response of absolute trust as his growing character faithfully responded to all the relationships that God had ordered. Now in Abraham's greatest trial, this unseen God is asking yet again if this man will walk holy before him and be tamim, if he will now surrender even the promise to the promise giver so that he might receive the greatest blessing of all. The tough question for Abraham is this, is he willing to trust God when it seems like God himself is willing to sacrifice his very purposes in Abraham's life? Can Abraham face the ultimate force of this opposing kingdom's rule? the fear of death, and still trust this God? Will the rule of love triumph over the rule of the fear of death, even the death of his only son? From the biblical perspective, this is a perfect test. For only if Abraham is willing to surrender the son of his flesh through whom the promise is to come, is there any hope that the purpose of that promise could ever come to pass through him? This is the promise of a new line of life that came into being only because Yahweh returned and old barren Sarah miraculously had a son. In other words, a new lineage was born in the wake of human impotence and barrenness, and so because of the miraculous intervention of Yahweh's spirit, a lineage born of Yahweh's spirit if he put his fleshly natural offspring, his pride and his own ethnicity, his race, his own person extended in perpetuity above the transcendent spiritual purpose of God, then Abraham could not possibly fulfill this God's purpose or be supremely blessed in the highest sense of the word. If the human flesh through which the promise is to appear, becomes more important than the transcendent God of the promise, than the promised rebirth of a holy nation that owes its origin to the supernatural intervention of the Spirit, then the promise will never come to pass. After all, the purpose is to bring forth a new society, a new social order through which this God can manifest himself and directly guide a people as he has Abraham, to their redemption in a living relationship of increasing oneness with him. So the overarching goal is still to bring forth a transcendent, as opposed to a merely natural, order of human relationships, a community that is sacred because it has been sacralized by its living relationship with God and is infused with both his presence and his word even while it is governed by his love. Again, will the integrating rule of love prove more powerful than the disintegrating rule of the fear of death? That is the ultimate question Abraham faces in this trial. Abraham has, of course, in our day been widely vilified for his willingness to sacrifice his son. Yet it suggested how many fathers and mothers down through the millennia, and especially in the bloodiest century of human history, the 20th, have devoted their sons and continued to devote them to other gods, such as the gods of politics and economics, of war and success, of fame and fortune, even of sports and entertainment. Now, son, the father, as good citizen urges, you be a brave soldier. Give the full measure of your devotion. When you go off to war, don't be a coward. Be willing to sacrifice your life for your country. Show yourself a hero. Defend your country. Bring honor and glory to your father, family, and nation. After the sun has gone away, the message comes back, killed in action. Was he not then devoted to a God, sacrificed to a cause considered of supreme worth? Others urge their sons to give themselves to the struggle for success, to acquire wealth and power, status and prestige. And these sons also march to the altar of sacrifice, even destroying their health, their emotions, their minds, their marriages, their ability to love, their relationships, their entire lives. Devotion to such goals, such gods, daily brings nervous breakdowns, physical breakdowns, heartache, heart attacks, strokes, divorce, alcoholism, drug addiction, and so on. But all this matters little, for after all, it's in the service of one's God. This is true whether the status sought is intellectual, social, political, financial, or even through some form of public entertainment. I think of Pete Merovich, whose father offered him up totally, even as a toddler, to the rather silly God of basketball. Pete did become one of the greatest basketball players of all time, but he later said that the God of basketball had ruined his life. Pete died suddenly shortly after this confession of how basketball had destroyed him, and he died at a relatively young age. So most fathers and mothers still do give their sons over to some god or another. None of this is said in order to justify anyone making Abraham's sacrifice in our own day, but it should make it more understandable to moderns. The main difference is that in Abraham's case, the sacrifice was to a different kind of god. It was to a God who wanted fathers to give their sons to Him so that this God could intervene voluntarily in the imminent world and show men, women, and children how to live and how to love. Only by offering sons to a deity who in the end clearly would not accept such a sacrifice could such sacrifices be ended. Only when willingly given over wholly to such a God could a son hope to escape from being sacrificed to gods who all too willingly consume both parents and children. Abraham submitted to the sacrifice of his own natural image and perpetuity that is, his son. He thus sacrificed his own natural immortality, and he thereby showed his dedication to give himself to something that truly transcended his own life. He showed his willingness to sacrifice himself, including all his pride and ambitions, as lived vicariously through his son. He showed that his goal wasn't to bring forth the new master race in the sense in which the Jewish philosopher Hannah Arendt critiqued a totally secularized chosen people as a superior ethnic race. Through this deed, Abraham also taught his son something else, that he was not worth more to Abraham than what was good and virtuous, what was true and right and loving. And so he set his son on the right course. By his act, Abraham declared that as Cass says, he will not finally love his son solely because he is his own, but will love only that in his son which is good and which is open to the good, including his son's own capacity for all before the divine. In this sense, at least, he is ever willing to part with his son as his son. And also in this sense, we know that Abraham's only unconditional love is directed toward the God who truly is love. So through this drastic test, it is Abraham, not God, who has learned a lesson. That limits are placed upon parental pride so that a different kind of order of relationships can come into being. He learns that a true father sees something higher than himself and his own and therefore will devote himself and his own, and even the community itself, to the very highest that he knows. This new transcendent order of society, of human relationships, as Abraham now recognizes, rejects the desire of the individual for personal glory or greatness at the expense of everyone and everything else. It requires instead that any greatness be found in submission to and reduction before the transcendently great, the truly great. Once again, only the context of ancient history provides the setting by which we can do full justice to what Abraham has done here. That setting was one rife with not only violence, but also human sacrifice particularly, it seems, of children just like Isaac. In the region of Mesopotamia from which Abraham had journeyed, babies were routinely sacrificed in earthen jars or simply tossed on the town rubbish heap. In Canaan, where Abraham immigrated, the situation was even more brutal. The nominally supreme god of the region was a pederast and an infanticidal maniac. This god's usurper son was a consort of his own mother and sister, a transsexual, bisexual psychotic whose relationships were characterized by unremitting, incest, slaughter, homophagia, and other forms of cannibalism. His mother goddess wife resurrects her consort's son by devouring his flesh without a knife and drinking his blood without a cup. That's a quote. In short, she ate him alive and raw. This myth is relevant because the omophagia, the eating of human sacrifices raw, apparently at times even eating them alive, was regularly reenacted in Canaanite rituals. Human sacrifice, particularly child sacrifice, was practiced for all major events, such as in the laying of a foundation for important buildings. Baby skeletons abound at Tirzah and Shechem, and infants were buried in jars at Gezer. Most sacrifices were indeed children offered up by their parents. Will Durant wrote in his History of the Age that, quote, "...the parents came to the ceremony dressed as for a festival." and the cries of their children burning in the lap of the God were drowned by the blaring trumpets and the piping of flutes. These acts were later duplicated even in Greece. So gods who called for the sacrifice of children were no stranger to Abraham or to the history of the region. Only, in fact, what was happening with Abraham and Isaac and this particular event could be called a radical departure from that history. Indeed, it so radically departed from the norm that it would become one of the major turning points in history in its affirmation of the transcendent source of Abraham's call. It did so in two ways. First, implicitly, the offering of an animal sacrifice as a substitute for a human being was a great advance in a cultural setting that had denied any ordered hierarchy of being. The Canaanite culture had been unable to acknowledge any ontological hierarchy, mainly because it could not bring itself to acknowledge the possibility of a Most High, a supreme being transcendent to all other levels of being, and to whom, therefore, human submission was necessarily due. The radical egalitarianism of every form of being but only in an unspiraling descent to the lowest common denominator, which ultimately amounted to little more than an equality with dirt, was the norm. Not only were gods and people interchangeable, but people and animals were deemed equal in value, and, as we've shown elsewhere, this radical reductionist equality in the status of all being did not stop until it reduced everything to the equal value of dust and ashes. In short, it did not raise the value placed on animals to the level of that placed on people. Rather, it lowered the value of people first to animals and then to mud. Thus, we can understand what we know of the willingness of these servile states to casually work to death, starve to death, and otherwise oppress, tyrannize, torture, slaughter, butcher, sacrifice, and cannibalize, human beings, even innocent children, and these states did this impersonally and indifferently with absolutely no qualms or feelings of grief or remorse. With Abraham's sacrifice, the simple substitution of a ram for a child indicated a dramatic reversal of this whole worldview and its lapsed order of an unending descent into deeper and deeper dissolution and death. It instead stated that different values were to be accorded to different levels of being with a God of love standing above all as the source and covering of all. By testing Abraham's priority of loyalties, how he ordered his own set of values and who or what would be first in his life, God was also testing whether he would remain faithful to this transcendent vision a vision that made possible the rejection of wholesale human sacrifice, as well as the whole culture and worldview upon which such sacralized violence rested. In this context, blessing seems almost too tame, too domesticated, too used up a word to describe the ineffable relief, as well as the absolute social and cultural joy that the changes brought by this God would mean to human beings and human relationships. The fact that Yahweh rejected the sacrifice of Isaac further affirmed this break with a ruthless culture and its history in two other ways. First, it reinforced in Abraham what had already taken hold of him in Ur. The conviction of a forward movement to history in that a new concept of relationship between deity and humanity had come into existence, a relationship based on a unique turn to the idea of prophetic vision and utterance. In the polytheistic states of the time, messages from deity were largely only forth-telling words coming through the political and economic coordinates of a civil religion. They were mainly intended, in other words, to reinforce policies to increase power, conquest, and wealth. Now, in contrast, a new foretelling element had entered the world. Its purpose was to reveal and direct the progression and fulfillment of a new human history with a new meaning, a new goal, which was the ultimate triumph of the rule of redemptive love. Instead of simply life as an accumulation of episodic experiences so fragmented and disconnected that they lost all meaning, mere heaps of episodes, the concept of life as a journey with a destination was born. Before, only the pseudo-journey without any real destination mattered. The journey itself was seen as the only meaning, which meant it was a journey to nowhere, which is a lot like saying that it's better to hunger than to eat or to itch but never scratch. Just so it was thought that it's better to journey but never be going anywhere. There simply was no go, no purpose, no destiny in such a life except transitory moments of pleasure or power. But this new journey to a transcendently set destiny was a journey that moved beyond the old pagan circles and cycles. It was watched over and guided by the unfolding power of love, by the power of the friendships and relationships that had first set this love in motion and thereby placed it in the context of community. So Abraham named the site where Yahweh withheld Abraham's hand from sacrificing his son, Yahweh Yahweh will provide our Yahweh sees ahead. Indeed, this is what allowed people to hope that, for the first time, a sense of history with a future and destiny had come into being. Now it became possible that a transcendent vision might reach down into the stagnant sloughs of interminable human conflicts for power and wealth. This vision would see ahead to a destiny that pulled people out of these sinkholes and set them on a course ignited by new hopes and dreams. And this new direction was to include all people, men, women, and children, not just a power elite. With Abraham in short, A new people of destiny had stepped onto the field of human narratives. Most narratives had previously been void of any plot except providing for the arbitrary amusement of one of a multitude of bloodthirsty gods. Now human existence had a story, a meta-narrative, that gave meaning and purpose to life. This created a new spiritual lineage of human relationships, a lineage that had come to birth only through the supernatural intervention of God's Spirit, which had given a son to a couple who were past the age to conceive. Now, if this people remained true to their origins and calling, no longer would history simply be merely the propaganda pap that pretentiously sacralized the political and economic machinations of a macro-parasitic class of rulers, The possibility now rose that a society of many peoples, from every walk of life, from every race and nation, from all the families of the earth, might be reborn of this same spirit, just as Isaac, the child of the promise, had been. When Yahweh rejected Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac, whose birth Yahweh himself was responsible for, it affected human history in a second way, On the one hand, for those who would follow Yahweh, eccentric individualism died. This included the image of the rugged individual who was not really so rugged, but rather actually stood in helpless isolation before the coercive power of the almighty pagan state. Yet on the other hand, a new centric individualism was born. This consisted of the self-sacrificing individual standing solely and voluntarily responsible before a God of love. To this God, the individual would freely surrender. Thus, the individual's sense of isolation would end as he entered a free will community founded by this unique God. The story of the sacrifice of Isaac shows then that it is not entirely accurate to describe as the family, the social unit that Abraham initiated, not at least unless the family, is understood in a specific sense. As the complete story of Abraham reveals, the most basic unit of such a culture is a relationship between an individual and God, between a man who became a father and the God who made him one. God did this first by supernaturally giving Abraham a son and then by educating Abraham to be a father to that son. Through this relationship, the transcendent order of a new and non-coercive authority would be established for all who dared to believe what the neo-pagan academic Inga Clendenin has typically called the stupid fantasy of a people being shaped in the divine image of God. In contrast to what for her was the more enlightened Aztec culture which refuted this silly notion by rolling the mutilated bodies of hundreds of thousands of human sacrifices down the blood-splattered steps of the Aztec pyramid, human sacrifices that would then be cut up and served as meat to Montezuma, and the priesthood of goons that made his entire kingdom an archetypal fascist death camp. Moreover, neither can a culture such as Abraham initiated, be characterized, strictly speaking, as a theocracy. Rather, this term more accurately denotes societies such as the Sumerian, Babylonian, Chaldean, Egyptian, and Aztec, because these were all believed to be ruled directly by deities, that is, most often, divinized men. Theocracy then connotes an external rule instead of a relationship although patriarchy has come to be characterized in this way, too, albeit erroneously. In reality, however, the type of voluntary society that Abraham initiated could only stand in opposition to an externally imposed state coercion. Abraham's decision to follow Yahweh did not rest on the power to intimidate, such as occurred under the Mesopotamian in Lille, Nothing terrified Abraham into submission to El Shaddai. Rather, his choice stood on a voluntary relationship, something unique and unprecedented, in which God called Abraham his friend. As shown, even when Elohim told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, he had said, if it pleases you to obey me. It wasn't an externally compelled command even the way in which God dealt with Abraham concerning Sodom shows a whole new view of the relationship between deity and humanity. So the most basic unit of such a culture is that between a specific individual and God. And that relationship of fathering to sonship branches out into the entire order of patria, of family, or fatherhood, and of all voluntary private relationships within this living order. After God's rejection of Isaac as a sacrifice, Abraham's lessons in fatherhood were at this point brought to some level of completion. But as Cass pointed out, apparently and ironically, a shift also occurred in Abraham's relationship with his own son. It seems that Isaac, whom Abraham devoted completely to God, does not accompany Abraham down from the mountain. They went up as one, they come down separately as two. Moreover, the only passage in which the Bible indicates that Isaac mourns his parents' deaths shows him being comforted in his mourning at the loss of his mother, not in any mourning over his lost father. Strikingly, the Genesis record never again shows any kind of inner relationship or conversation between Isaac and Abraham, although it does say that Ishmael and Isaac came together to bury their father beside Isaac's mother. Even here though, Cass wondered why Isaac, whom God has identified to Abraham as Abraham's only son, should join with the outcast Ishmael to fulfill this final filial duty. And then the Bible simply records, and Yahweh blessed Isaac after his father had died Perhaps after Abraham's willingness to sacrifice Isaac, the latter views his father as a harsh old man who does not truly love his son because he does not put him above God. Abraham had, however, done one last service for Isaac. Abraham had provided his son a wife, and that wife eventually gave birth to twins, Esau and Jacob. Esau tellingly, became Isaac's favorite. Within the line of promise, he was the firstborn, like Isaac himself. He provided Isaac with the material blessings that Isaac so enjoyed, namely venison. So Isaac grew fond of Esau and had every intention of passing along the birthright to him. But the wife Abraham had provided for Isaac saw something that Isaac did not see. She saw that there would be trouble with Esau, that he had no sense of the greater transcendent purpose and its attendant and greater blessings. Thus Esau married Hittite and Hivite wives from among the violent and bloodthirsty Canaanites, wives outside the line of promise, wives who could not and would not help educate the next generation, wives like the Egyptian Hagar, who was the mother of Isaac's half-brother Ishmael. This course that Esau followed had greatly grieved his parents, but apparently it may have grieved Rebekah more than Isaac. So the firstborn son of Isaac had already lost the very meaning and purpose of the transcendent promise of a new society ordered through the relationships of family and community. And when he lost these, he'd already lost his inheritance in that promise. Something of this vision of a new sort of community on earth had been imparted to Isaac from his father, but for some reason it never became a part of the vision of Isaac's own firstborn, Esau. Isaac's firstborn was not like the secondborn, Jacob, a simpler tamim, meaning integral, whole, complete, man, a plain man, dwelling in tents, who more than anything wanted the inheritance and blessing of this new society, this transcendent community that the Hebrew God was beginning to build on the earth. Apparently, it seems this wife that Abraham had provided for Isaac had done some nurturing with his second son, even though he too would have to suffer pain, struggle and loss on the road to complete transformation. Through him, however, the transcendent seed of promise provided by God to Abraham would still be carried forward. The text describing this crucial event, even though brought to pass through deceit, reads, Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come close so that I may feel you, my son, whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob came close to Isaac, his father, and he felt him and said, It is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. Isaac did not recognize that it was Jacob because his hands were disguised to feel hairy like Esau's. So Isaac, in his blindness, blessed Jacob instead of Esau. He had asked, though, Are you really my son? Are you really my son, Esau? Jacob lied, I am. Then Isaac said, Bring to me, and I will eat of my son's game, that I may bless you. Then the narrative races on toward the deeply affecting climax. And he brought it to him and he ate and he also brought him wine and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, come and kiss me, my son. He came close and kissed him. And when he smelled the smell of his garments, he blessed him and said, see the smell of my son. It's like the smell of a field which Yahweh has blessed. Now may God give you the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and an abundance of grain and new wine. May people serve you and nations bow down before you. Be master of your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be those who curse you and blessed be those who bless you. Now it came about as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob and Jacob had already gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, that Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting, and he also made savory food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, let my father rise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. Again, to Isaac, material things seem to provide the only basis of blessing, but Yahweh Yerah has once more seen ahead. Isaac, his father, said, Who are you? He said, I am your firstborn, Esau. Then we are told that upon hearing these words, Isaac trembled with a very great trembling. Cass is surely correct in saying that this trembling had little to do with anger at being deceived. It went far beyond that. Perhaps Isaac at that moment felt the same ancient awe and dread of something beyond his control, beyond his power, something transcendent to Isaac himself or his personal desires, plans, or intentions. The transcendent presence seems to have now once again as that Mariah, entered his life. He again had suddenly intruded and then again taken control. So perhaps he now felt that same dread presence he had first sensed when his own father Abraham had bound him to the altar on the mountain. Perhaps even now saw his father as more than a harsh old man. And in fact, Isaac himself had now in effect sacrificed his own firstborn son. he had actually done spiritually exactly what his father had been willing to do to him physically. Only Isaac did so inadvertently in his blindness and not as a father fully present to his son as Abraham had been to him. He'd done so in short without a direction and a vision that would enable his own firstborn to ultimately receive the promise. And so we are left to wonder if he had failed to do this by default because of his negligence, because of his failure to do that which his own father had tried to do with him that is to impart a vision of the transcendent purpose of God. We do not know the answer to this question, but we do know that he now trembled with an exceedingly great trembling, and then asked in wonder and bewilderment, who was he that hunted game and brought it to me that I ate of all of it before you came and blessed him? Yes, and he shall be blessed. Perhaps this last statement reveals that he now finally received the understanding, the revelation, not only of what he had done and of what he had failed to do, but also of what his father had in fact done for him. And the kind of blessing beyond material blessings promised in the very revelation of El Shaddai to Abraham blessings that had been bestowed upon him by his father because the latter was willing to sacrifice the material for the spiritual. Later, the last words of Isaac recorded in scripture were to his son, Jacob. May El Shaddai bless you and make you fruitful and increase your numbers until you become a community of peoples. May he give you and your descendants the blessing given to Abraham so that you may take possession of the land where you now live as an alien, the land God gave to Abraham. So at last he saw the transcendent purpose of a new order of human relationships that his father had founded, a community of peoples. And the very last word we hear Isaac utter before he departs from the land of the living, is the name of his father of Abraham, the father of all the generations of the faithful heart, the man who sacrificed everything for the promise of the kingdom born of God, the community of Yahweh Yirah the God who sees ahead. And God did see ahead to the fulfillment of his purpose in a people even when that people still only knew him as El Shaddai, the Blessing Giver.
0: Thank you for listening to this audio message. It is our hope that you have been both challenged and inspired by the Word of God. For other messages and materials by this author, please visit www.homesteadheritage.com.